Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. Hi listeners, this is Colin Larson. Even for those with significant experience in the technology field, the concept of quantum computing can feel intimidating. After all, it's a field involving the notoriously complex theories governing subatomic particles, the physical engineering challenges of supercomputer construction, and the higher-level mathematics of digital cryptography. And if that sentence made your head spin, then this episode of The Buzz might be a good place to start. The potential applications of quantum computing make it an area of research for the federal government, and while the technology is still in its infancy, we should be prepared for what it may bring in the near future. So, to help us understand why quantum computing matters, this week we're joined by Tim Gilday and Sabina Sokol. Tim is the industry chair of ACTIAC's Quantum Knowledge Group and the Emerging Technology Senior Director at GDIT, and Sabina is the Resource Management and Education Advisor for the Quantum Knowledge Group and the Chief Resource Officer for Girls in Quantum. Tim Gilday, Sabina Sokol, thank you so much for joining me on The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Thanks for having us, Colin. We're uh, happy to be here and talk about one of our favorite subjects today. Awesome. I'm very excited. So let's assume that I know basically nothing about quantum computing, uh, which would be a fair assumption. Um, how would you explain it to me at a very you know, introductory level. So before we get into an overview of quantum computing, I'd like to make a quick disclaimer that this is not a complete full detail explanation. I would need to simplify some concepts for the sake of brevity and also to build a more general understanding of the subject. So with that, quantum computing is essentially harnessing the power of quantum objects, which are really, really small things. We're talking the atomic and subatomic level. And we can harness this power of these objects to perform calculations that would take classical computers a very long time to do if they can do them at all. And classical computers run on classical bits, which can either be in a state of zero or one, like a light switch, it could be on or off, light or no light, energy or no energy. Quantum computers, on the other hand, run on quantum bits, aka qubits, which can be in a combination of a zero and a one state. Think of it like a dimmable light. It's a certain percentage of light or energy and a certain percentage of no light or no energy. So what's the advantage? Well. Quantum computing has a lot of really cool properties you can harness. And one of them is you can run through many, many possibilities at the same time to get to a solution more efficiently. So for example, if a classical computer were solving a maze, it would have to check each potential solution or each path in this case, one at a time until it gets to the right one. If a quantum computer were solving a maze, you'd be able to check all potential solutions or paths at once to get to the right one. And you'll generally need to run that quantum algorithm for the same problem a couple times to be certain that that indeed is the answer. 
But if we can still solve the maze with a classical computer, why even bother with quantum? Well, right now we're in what is known as the NISC era, where our quantum systems and calculations are still small enough to model on classical supercomputers. So we can usually check our work when doing quantum computation. But the bigger the problem, or the maze in this case gets, the harder it is and the longer it takes for a classical machine to solve it to the point where it can become too complex to even attempt to find a solution. But because a quantum computer can scale its calculation process while keeping the time and resource requirements to a minimum, it can continue finding solutions to even the biggest of problems. So while we're still building up to this capability in quantum computing, where we can surpass classical capabilities, we can explore applications like quantum chemistry or quantum natural language processing or quantum cryptography to address the smaller problems right now. Okay. So uh, quantum cryptography, this is a topic that comes up in discussions around cybersecurity. Um, I'm, I think I'm starting to see the pieces here because you talked about running through multiple combinations simultaneously much faster than classical computers. Mm-hmm. So can you walk me through when it comes to cryptography and cybersecurity, what are the quantum applications? Okay, so when people talk about quantum in relation to cybersecurity or cryptography, they're generally referring to one of two big ideas. The first one relates to Grover's algorithm, which is a quantum search algorithm that can theoretically brute force symmetric key systems faster than quantum computer, uh, classical computers currently can. So the concern is really maintaining secure cryptographic keys either by simply generating longer ones or employing something like quantum key distribution. So essentially we're focused on encrypting data, making sure it's a secret for a longer period of time because it would take much longer to crack the schema. The second idea relates to Shor's algorithm, which is a quantum algorithm that can, but we haven't gotten there yet, break asymmetric key systems like RSA, for example. To put it simply, these schemas rely on the fact that it is difficult to factor very large prime numbers. And Shor's algorithm is basically an astonishingly efficient prime number factorization tool. So you can see why that poses a problem. And this is the most concerning quantum cybersecurity, quantum cryptography area. The fact that Shores can and will be implemented one day when we have better quantum computers is a big reason why many security-minded entities are looking into quantum-safe options. For example, NIST had its fourth post-quantum cryptography, or PQC for short, conference in November of last year to standardize the use of new quantum-resistant cryptographic algorithms. Uh, So where would we typically see applications of the kind of cryptography that these quantum algorithms would be breaking. Basically, you know, what's at risk here with the development of quantum computing? So systems that use, like Sabina said, systems that use asymmetric encryption algorithms like RSA, those are most at risk um, even today. Um, 
and I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but there's a concept which I think is is very common in the cybersecurity uh, realm called harvest now, decrypt later. And so part of the challenge is even though data may be encrypted at this moment, if bad actors are downloading it, they can simply wait until, uh, like Sabina said, they have a crypto analytically relevant quantum computer that can slice through that asymmetric encryption. From the symmetric encryption side, uh, and Sabina mentioned Grover's algorithm, that is not necessarily going to be broken by quantum computing. It may be weakened, but theoretically at this point, it looks like we merely have to double uh, the AES strength. Uh, and then it's, in a sense, uh, again, we're, we're abbreviating these explanations, but it's like dividing infinity by two, right? So you'll weaken it, but it's not going to be broken through as, as far as our current understanding is. For my benefit, what types of data are encrypted in using the methods that you just described, asymmetrical and symmetric um, cryptography? You could have any of the government's data uh, at risk. So that would include um, not only data that that we would consider on a day-to-day basis, like personal health information or agency financial information or logistics, GPS information, geospatial, uh, but it also could include um, uh, keys that you would use uh, in exchanging to to show party A and party B that they are the supposed uh, signer and recipient of data being transferred. So if those keys are broken into, that also is a component of the cybersecurity lifecycle that would be at risk. Uh, now, that, that sounds a bit scary um, to me. So what's the current status of quantum computing? Some, some people in the industry say that uh, if a crypto analytically relevant quantum computer were to exist, we wouldn't know about it. So to be honest, it is possible that there is a commercialized quantum computer at this, at this moment. But realistically speaking, it's, it's unlikely. Uh, the U.S. has put a lot of um, private and public investment into this, uh, a lot of research, and we can, to some degree, see what other countries around the world are doing. And as far as we understand, nobody's quite near that. Uh, and as Sabina mentioned, there's an, a noise, right, an error correction. So we need to have a much higher coherence uh, when we're doing quantum computing for it to, to be anywhere near the calculation strength uh, that would be needed to crack through uh, any of these cybersecurity uh, encryption methods. That being said, um, I think the federal government recognizes this as a threat because of the Harvest Now Decrypt Later uh, opportunity. From a national security perspective, the agencies that should care and do care, they've already been taking steps for years to make sure that that information is protected in multiple ways whether or not they're using advanced encryption algorithms or air gapping or post-quantum cryptography, uh, they take a variety of protection measures to make sure that that's safe. But there are uh, many other data repositories and stores across the federal government that we would prefer not to get out, even though it may not be, as we call it, gravely damning. uh, It still wouldn't be a great thing for the United States or citizens to see that information exposed either. So that's the next step. Uh, one of the things, though, that NSA, NIST, and, and others are trying to convey from a messaging standpoint is the sky is not falling. We don't want agencies to rush out and buy things off the shelf just yet. We want uh, NIST to be able to complete not only their evaluation of quantum-resistant algorithms, 
which they've been doing, uh, and they've already identified several suites of uh, productive algorithms that they can put out. But NIST is also coming up with the guidance around how agencies should be implementing this on top of their FIPS-compliant existing cybersecurity architectures. So rather than an immediate rip and replace or a Y2K upgrade, what they're advising agencies to do is take a scan of your landscape, understand where your data sits, and make sure you know what you don't know, and then take steps to analyze the sensitivity or criticality of that data. So what's the most important that if it did get out, it would uh, tarnish your reputation, hurt the agency, hurt individuals. And then when you've got that ranking of data sensitivity, let's look at, is it symmetric or asymmetric? What type of security do you have protecting that data at rest and in transit? And from that, we would get a priority list. What would be the first data sets that we would need to work on or the first parts of our organization that we'd have to work on to start to upgrade once NIST comes out with that federal guidance? And so that's what's happening right now. And I will say a lot of people that are uh, deep in the cyber industry, they know about zero trust, defensive cyber ops. They know that this is merely good cyber hygiene. So to some degree, uh, the quantum threat is a forcing function to make sure that we are cleaning up and making sure that we're minimizing the attack vectors that uh, bad actors can take. But at the end of the day, we would expect that some quantum resistant algorithms will be applied uh, in addition to uh, the, the normal post-quantum cryptography that already exists. You know, that's protecting data on the government side, the sorts of things agencies can do. Um, in the U.S., a lot of our personal data as individuals is also held in private repositories um, by private organizations. So this may be looking down the road a little bit, but how will responses to quantum decryption sort of percolate among other organizations within the United States that are non, non-governmental entities? That's a very good question, Colin. And Sabina, feel free to chime in as well. Uh, in this sense, I, I think that there are already many pre-existing relationships between private industry and the government, especially from a security, a cybersecurity standpoint, where a lot of threat intelligence is shared, um, upcoming standards and new requirements are shared, uh, open commentary on the pressure to in, in industry companies and how they may have difficulty um, upgrading themselves. That back and forth dialogue is occurring constantly. But what we want to do is make sure that we continue and increase that communication. Uh, this is a global problem, not just a U.S. problem as well. So we want to make sure that as much as possible, we're pushing for um, conformance with international standards. Um, we hope to have interoperability so that whether we're getting software from uh, a different country or we're bringing um, our own homegrown software, that we're building it with security in mind from the beginning and that it's all compliant. We don't want to necessarily have a wide variety of approaches because then it would make the maintenance even more difficult from a cyber perspective. Uh, as far as risks go, you know, the ex- exploitation of personally identifiable information or intellectual property, um, that, that could become a real issue. People are becoming increasingly used to some level of hacking occurring where some of their information gets out. Uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of social security numbers and other uh, demographic information might be out in the environment, but there's still a lot of personal information that is private and we'd like to keep it that way. 
So making sure that our not only government, but also our uh, private industry follow the same standards for protecting this kind of data is, is paramount. So I think that um, things like the National Cybersecurity Preparedness Act or the Quantum Cybersecurity Preparedness Act that was just signed in January, these are the kind of um, guidance and, and recommendations that we should be expecting from the government in the near future that not only have an impact to the way that government does business, but also industry that's supporting it. Uh, Sabina, anything from your side? Yeah, I did want to make one note about you were talking about the sky's not falling and some people are used to that level or some level of hacking amidst the race to improve quantum computing and also mitigate the consequences of it. Employing stronger cryptographic algorithms in our systems, like you mentioned, is only part of the overall cybersecurity, national security picture. There's still dozens of other cyber hygiene practices, everything from user education about social engineering attacks to multi-factor authentication. All of that is still very much relevant. And PQC algorithms address the threat of quantum, but that won't magically resolve all of the current digital security and privacy issues we have right now. So while we should do everything in our power to address the threat quantum poses to our current cryptographic systems, we should not drop the ball in developing all other areas of cyber. So when it comes to the risk of quantum computing, you know, now we're more used to non-state actors uh, having accessible tools to you know, attack computer systems, gain information. Um, is that a potential threat with quantum in the in the future, or, or is the the level of resources required to build these systems so intensive that we're really only going to be concerned about major state actors? At the beginning, for sure, this is such a capital-intensive process. Um, accessibility, both for good actors and bad actors, will be uh, a challenge. From the accessibility standpoint, we would want to make sure that all our different communities, uh, including academic and scientific, have as much access as possible to quantum computing. But as the industry matures and these type of systems become potentially more easily accessible for brief uh, one-hour rentals from the cloud, for example, that may, uh, while it has a great impact, that may make it more accessible to bad actors as well. So in the near term, uh, I would personally believe that only state actors or large uh, entities with, with access to a lot of capital would be able to take advantage of this. But if we fast forward uh, as it gets more widely deployed, then we may start to see uh, smaller groups eventually getting access to this. I would also mention that it's, it's almost like a antibiotic versus bacteria arms race, where as one gets better, the other evolves and gets better and back and forth. So it's not that at some point, uh, quantum computing would just break everything and then we'd be done. Uh, this should also, you know, quantum computing is going to uh, improve machine learning. And uh, that will hopefully enable additional breakthroughs as we search for additional algorithms and additional ways to secure our information. So I would expect um, a lot of vibrant innovation on both sides, <laughs> the bad actor side and the good actor side. Okay. So if listeners want to learn more, if they want to get more involved, um, as mentioned in the opening of the episode, you two are members of ActiX Quantum Knowledge Group. So 
What do you all have coming up in the near future? Yeah, thanks for uh, allowing us to make this plug, Colin. Uh, ActiX Quantum Knowledge Group is one of the newest uh, emerging tech groups under the emerging tech community of interest, uh, led by Todd Hager and, and Robert Worman. So in the Quantum Knowledge Group, we uh, have pretty um, excited community, and we've already gotten to the point where not only are we educating ourselves and sharing concerns and ideas, we're actually starting to put out initial deliverables, documents that we hope would help not only government program leads, but also industry who supports those government leads uh, to understand the basics. And that would be some of the primary principles of quantum, both from a computing perspective and also from that cybersecurity risk perspective that we just talked about. So um, with Sabina's support, with uh, Jeremy Wood and Jessica Tabasti Davis's support and, and a whole host of others, we are driving two um, deliverables that we'd like to have out before May of 2023. And that would be uh, a mini primer of sorts, just to make sure that we've got the basics, we understand some of the use cases and um, how the government might need to start identifying talent uh, and, and workforce development opportunities to make sure uh, that we're tackling the benefits as, as quickly as possible. And then the other deliverable is um, that important glance across all the different guidance that the government's been putting out around the cybersecurity implementation uh, and, and implications. So those two are being led by um, some of our um, government and industry uh, attendees. And then um, we plan to have a panel in May at um, Cambridge, Maryland for the um, ACT-IAC Emerging Tech and Innovation Summit. So that, that went over very well last year. Uh, we had some great government speakers and uh, a lot of feedback from the community after that. So we're planning a, re a repeat of that this year. And that should hopefully tie into, not be standalone, but tie into our discussion on artificial intelligence and machine, machine learning. And then also, um, something near and dear to me, which is the increasing pace of change and how these two exponential technologies of quantum and AI are creating a virtuous cycle of sorts that lead to faster discoveries, faster inventions. And while that's all great, it also creates a disruption from a government standpoint where we need to figure out how to embrace this change for the betterment of our uh, country, as opposed to um, allowing it to disrupt our way of doing business. Sabina, what else is going on with Quantum Knowledge Group and our allies, uh, Girls in Quantum? Yeah, so I'm the Chief Resource Officer and U.S. Ambassador of Girls in Quantum, and so I serve as sort of a liaison between Girls in Quantum and IX Quantum Knowledge Group. On the Girls in Quantum side, we're hosting a whole slew of monthly webinars. We're also developing a course that's going to serve as an introduction of introductions for younger students specifically going into the field. We're not really concerned with the very technical nitty gritty aspects, just getting a basic understanding. So as we move forward with quantum developments, especially with AI and machine learning, the next generation knows what is going on and knows how to talk about it. And so Colin, I'll put in this last plug, uh, Sabina alluded to perfectly, which is uh, ACT-IAC. It's important for us to make sure that we're raising the right 
points on emerging technology to the government to consider to make sure that we're minimizing risk and we're extracting maximum benefit. But just like you're supposed to bake cybersecurity in habitually day to day, uh, we're also making sure to bake diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility into everything that we do. Uh, so that's not only from our events perspective, but also from the technology perspective. And that's why I'm very excited to have uh, Sabina as that bridge between ACT-IAC and Girls in Quantum, one of the many great groups that help us to get disparate and diverse thinking involved as we're trying to uh, identify these trends and recommendations to the government. So thank you so much for making time for us today. Uh, really hope to uh, connect with you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And uh, for listeners, I will put links to some of the various resources that were discussed in the episode notes. Um, that panel that Tim mentioned from last year's Emerging Technology Conference, uh, we did publish as an episode. If you want to listen to it, you can get a bit more in-depth with the technical side of quantum, uh, far more than we were able to today. Thank you so much, Tim, Sabina. Tim Gilday is the industry chair of ActiX Quantum Knowledge Group and Emerging Technology Senior Director at GDIT. Sabina Sokol is, as mentioned, uh, the Resource Management and Education Advisor for the Quantum Knowledge Group and the Chief Resource Officer and Ambassador for Girls in Quantum. Thank you both so much. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ActiX. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ActIAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.